Genre Hustle, your virtual sci-fi fantasy writers group. I'm Anton. I'm Jane. I'm Chelsea. I'm Chris. And I'm AP. And today we have a very special guest. We have Maureen McHugh. Thank you for coming on, Maureen. Thanks for having Welcome. me. Welcome. Thanks for coming, Maureen. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk about your story, Under the Hill. But maybe first, do you want to give us like a quick bio, sort of who you are, what you do, what it's all about? Sure. I'm a science fiction novelist and short story writer. My first novel, China Mountain Jong, was nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula and all that sort of thing a long time ago. Uh, my last collection, After the Apocalypse, was one of Publishers Weekly's 10 Best Books of the Year. And I teach screenwriting and interactive fiction at University of Southern California. Awesome. Well, you're no cool. slouch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't believe oh, you're even here. I know. What are we? What are, <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh, oh. Um, you've heard of Under the Hill. Well, there's also Over the Hill. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, for the ignorant people among us, uh, what is interactive fiction? Um, about half of my students write video games. And the other one, is, the other part of it is what they used to call new media. Ah, okay. So basically, we have to deal with the problems of... So when you're writing for video games, you know, writing is character and situation. Uh, it's a really simple way to describe plot. Uh, as, I was, as I tell my students, if you think, okay, here's a situation, convenience store robbery. Thor walks in. Well, what Thor does is he strides up to the guy with the gun and he says, what is wrong with you? Have you no honor? Peter Parker walks in and the first thing he thinks is, shit, 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 shit. I'm not wearing my Spider-Man costume. How people, how stories are formed is how a character acts in a situation. When you do interactive, often the character's decisions are made by the person playing the game. So suddenly half of your toolbox is gone for controlling story. Mm. And they have multiple options, right? I mean, I mean, we're not going to yeah. do video games today, but I mean, there's like yeah. all sorts of different ways to go. Yeah. And uh, constructing a story that's compelling, which by the way, Video games don't necessarily need story. Tetris works fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But constructing a story that's compelling is hard to do because of that issue. Right, right. So uh, I mentioned today Under the Hill, which is out now, right? Uh, It was out in September and October. Right, in uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction magazine, their 70th anniversary issue so yeah. congratulations to getting oh, in on that i know it is a great issue just to plug that issue you a little bit yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly it's got a lot of big well, we're like this it. i'm yeah. the short one uh, <laughs> um so do you mind can you read just a little bit just so people know what we're going to be talking about today sure sure under the hill you have been accepted to berkman a tiny but prestigious liberal arts college and awarded some scholarship money Berkman was your reach school. You never thought you would get in. You resolve that you will do three things when you go to college. One, you will tell people that everyone calls you cat. They do not. Two, you will lose 15 pounds. Three, you will stop being the person who is all of your friend's mom's favorite. You imagine this slim, mysteriously, deeply fascinating creature. Your roommate is tall and rangy and has a bike and takes up more than her half of the double. She has a matching duck yellow comforter and rug and what turns out to be lacrosse equipment. She says, hi, I'm Katie. You're Amelia, right? Sorry, I'm all over the place. I'll get this mess straightened out. No problem, you say. You don't mention anything about being called cat because it feels stupid. She will never, as it turns out, get all her stuff straightened out. You will in the next couple of weeks finally learn the rules of lacrosse 
<laughs> wow. Thank Somehow you. Katie is the perfect name for... Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so where did the idea for this story come from? It's really funny. Um, because I do VR and AR and interactive new media, I try to keep up a date on social media. And I was on uh, Tumblr, and this one of these posts was a cartoon somebody did about what if there really were elves at your college, you know, there would be rules at your college, therefore, about what bands you hired and what you had to do and what was approved. And I started thinking about what if there were fae at your college? And then I had to write it. And there it was. Mm. I think of the fae as scary. Mm-hmm. I like as this. As you should. I like the tall, beautiful, scary people. Yeah. Healthy respect. Yes. We mortals must have. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The same respect you have for sharks. Yes. (laughs) Well put, Chelsea. (laughs) So I think one of the things that hits you right away that you listeners probably heard uh, immediately too, is that it's written in second person, which is really unusual. And some people say never do it. Right. I don't know. We had a long, we actually did a a two part episode. point of view and we struggled with second person a little bit so i'm really interested to find out how that came about yeah chris because you brought calvino right i brought in a little calvino and it was was difficult for all of us i first learned about it from um the work of laurie moore who wrote a collection called self-help um which she did as her MFA thesis and then published to great acclaim, which is kind of hateful. <laughs> you do kind of hate those people. Yeah, <laughs> I've never written a story in second person before, um, but I went through a serious, serious, serious point of view narrative obsessed phase. Mm-hmm. And second person, there's three versions of what it actually is. Um, and I can only remember two of them. So. <laughs> Stick to those. Yeah. <laughs> when you think of the third one, we'll have you back. Yeah, I will. <laughs> um, the first, the most common way it's used is actually it's a stand-in for first person, which is what I did here. And, and we use it all the time in speech. You know how you sit down to write and, and you're thinking, oh, God, what am I going to write about? I know. I'll put it in second and it doesn't solve anything. Notice I'm actually talking about myself, even though I'm saying you. Um, the, other one, this, the other version is where it is actually second person and the, the you is the audience implied. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, this story for me is the first one. Um, Amelia is a name I use in stories when the character is really, really deeply based on me. Hmm. Um, well, it's funny because the blurb, if I remember right, in the book, mm-hmm. there's a little blurb where you say something like, this is an autobiographical story yeah, or right. something. This is true. This yeah. is a true story. And I was yeah. like, oh, that's clever. Because you're like, yeah. and then you go right into second person. I'm like, oh, that's that's funny. Like, Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do. Uh, by the way, there, there will be spoilers. Oh, oh yeah. right, yeah. We're yeah. Yes. Yes. We, didn't Thanks. we may talk about the end. Good job. Yeah, yeah. 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 I Thanks tend to spoil. I also tend to say fuck a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I used it, initially I used it because I really love Laurie Moore's writing. <laughs> um, but also I think it does this weird thing in a story that it also does when we talk. Uh, when I say you... When I'm saying, you know, you sit down to write and you just don't know what to write about. 
I am saying I am like you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I workshopped this story at a uh, workshop called Rio Hondo. And it's in New Mexico. It's run by Walter John Williams. And it's a bunch of writers who go to Taos, New Mexico in the spring when it's gorgeous and there aren't many people and get to take it off their taxes. (laughs) But while we are there, we actually critique each other's stories. And Rick Wilbur, who is this guy who is in some ways um, totally as unlike me as you can possibly be. His father was a professional baseball player. And if you meet me, you know, I am sort of the last person you would take for a jock. (laughs) And he said, oh, my God, this is me. Mm. And I am pretty sure that he never met an elf. Mm -hmm. Um, But when he was in college, he found out he was not going to be able, I think, injury to go on to a professional career. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I so I found it really interesting because we were talking about Calvino, you know, on, on a winter's night of traveler, and for me, that's a very, in a way, it almost it's a distancing effect when I yeah. read his stuff. Absolutely. When I read your story, I immediately noticed the second person, and immediately I was like, oh my gosh, she's using second person, and then I f- pretty much forgot about it as I read yeah. the story, and it almost did the opposite it made it very intimate in a way was that an effect that you were going for or is it just i think of it at this is going to sound so stupid um i think it distances you in a way initially that allows you to relax mm. and then sneaks you in that, that, that's mm. a good I, yeah. Yeah. yeah and i think it what it does is we we kind of develop a an emotional familiarity with amelia as the story progresses and then because college is in like, you know, your kind of your very early 20s is such a time of transition. Yeah. You know, there's so much that that resonates with the reader um, and it, it just invites you closer and closer and you start and like and having the you there invites you to start thinking about like, oh, yeah, the first girl that broke my heart and, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the and, and the, the, the dried out cheeseburgers at the <laughs> at the commissary. Yeah. You I know, miss them so much. You know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. And the weird eggs. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It invites you to reflect on your own sort of transitional experiences. And I do think having it in a college, because college is that transition moment, and you signal it in the very beginning when she, Amelia, is like, oh, they're going to call me Kat, and I'm going to be this person. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. how we all, who she is. right? Yeah. Like, every fall, I feel like in school, I don't know if you all did this, but I was like, this year, I'm going to have my binder totally organized. I'm like, <laughs> right? So that's change. such a change. Um, So I really enjoy, I thought the setting worked really well for for that. The other thing that I think the second person direct address kind of did for me was it made me wonder, um, you know, who is telling this story if it's you and it's Amelia, Mm. but it was almost like she's telling it to herself after some period of time, because it's also in past tense. That's right. interesting because I don't think Amelia is telling the story. I I didn't oh, think so either. If he has a theory on this, we talked about. Yeah, it. this is just my own personal. It's, it's just theory. I want to hear. I want to hear. So I mean, and we're going to talk about footnotes later because this to me ties to footnotes. So, yes. so, oh, so tied into the footnotes, maybe this is where we transition to it. To me, after I finished reading the story, I imagined this was whoever the narrator is, and I couldn't quite figure that out. Talking to Amelia but doing it in front of a fae person who is observing. And the footnotes are for oh. the fae. 
and they're watching this interaction to learn more about humans. I love that. that and is I am so interesting. So tempted to say, oh, you're absolutely right. <laughs> so because the theory. footnotes, uh, well, one of them is in Faye. Mm-hmm. Right. So obviously whoever's reading the footnotes has to be able to read Faye. And then another one was like, it was telling the person reading something that Amelia already knew. Mm. So the footnote wasn't to Amelia. So that's why I was like, I had this like maybe third person that was part of what was going on. But that's, you know, that's just what I read. No, it's a legitimate question. Um, I will, when I worked in starting in 2003 in uh, a particular form of interactive narrative called alternate reality games, uh, we were trying to invent a new art form. And when novels first started in English, I mean, we're not going to talk about Cervantes because he's just himself. <laughs> um, like when Daniel Defoe was writing Robinson Crusoe, his name was not on the book. He pretended that the book was by Robinson right, Crusoe. That's okay. right, yeah. Um, and because the question that they had to answer, nobody had reading protocols for fiction yeah yeah so the idea was you know you were telling your life story um over time then we went to the omniscient narrator and now the narrator is the invisible character controlling the story and we're all comfortable with that and we don't think well who's telling the story Mm -hmm. um just like when you're watching spartacus you don't think why are there movie cameras in the bath (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's just a convention and so for me there is a very clear narrator in this Mm -hmm. who is controlling the story and i love the way you've made that narrator concrete well, I mean, I didn't do it. You did it. Well, no, <laughs> I, I did the two not. Use. <laughs> yeah, I did not have your model in my head. And I love that model a lot because it, it seems to me to do exactly what I want. Oh, good. Um, which is, again, I, I think if you're too hot in a point of view, um, I don't know if you guys... What do you mean by hot? Thank mm. you. I don't know if you've yeah. talked about this. No. Um, the way I talk about hot and cold point of views. Um, This is what 30 years of teaching does. You have to explain all the stuff that you don't know you know. Um, uh, Is usually by using film examples. So imagine you're in a very tight camera, like almost Blair Witch. You know, the camera's riding literally on the character's shoulder, and you kind of get a glimpse of their feet, so you know that it's a woman in business shoes, you know, maybe walking down a sidewalk on a sunny day, and then all of a sudden, you fall towards the sidewalk, and it's, and you whip you, the camera around, and you can see somebody running away with a purse, and it's all very intense. It's very hot, very emotional. Mm-hmm. But you don't have much information. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now you set the camera on a tripod across the street, and we see her walking, and we see someone walking up behind her, and we're going, look, 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 look. And then he grabs her purse and knocks her down, and we see her. That's a cold point of view. So... Too hot a point of view, I think, can make us throw our guards up sometimes. Mm, interesting. Um, mm. I, my first thought in a really hot point of view with Amelia is, I'm nothing like that. So pulling the narrator back a bit can sometimes actually allow you to say, oh, I can make the empathetic and imaginative leap to be like you, even though this isn't anything that happened to me. Right, and you end mm-hmm. up kind of filling in mm-hmm. some of the blanks with the you, because even though the specific you that Amelia's getting isn't exactly what you experienced, you, right. it connects to your own slightly different 
correct version mm. of what's going on. Right. Now, understand, I didn't think all this stuff out before I started writing. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. And you started writing it in second person. You didn't do a draft in first or in third. Yeah, I started oh. in second person. I was trying to figure out how to get into the story. And um, sometimes doing something... I have a whole bunch of ways that I use just to get into a story. One of them is I come up with a technique, and another one is I take two ideas that aren't initially clearly connected, and I smash them together. And <laughs> you know, um, so this is just a way. Sometimes, if I'm really interested in something, and I think I feel like a resonance with ah, second person would be really cool because I love it with Laurie Moore. I'll try it in this story. It's a really, really inefficient way to write because I can't tell you how many false starts I get end up with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think yeah. we can, I think everyone here can yeah. sympathize with that. Um, so, so, but let's go back to the footnotes thing because yeah. I think that's super interesting mm-hmm. what AP brought up. So why footnotes? Did that come in your first draft? Was that something you always wanted to do? Yep. Hmm. The footnotes were basically what they are now in the first draft. Um, slightly different. Um, the Elvish one was actually um, one ring to rule them all, one ring to bind them. I, 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 I recognized the recognize recognize And then yeah. the copy editor said, you know, you really can't do that. Uh. <laughs> so now it's the course listing. Um, so um, David Foster Wallace liked to use footnotes to try to remind people they were reading which mm. seems to me to be a really weird thing to want mm. to remind the reader. Uh, I'll tell you my first reason for using footnotes and my basic reason for using footnotes is because I think they're cool and I really like to read them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I don't know how this story's going to go. I'll just throw everything at it I possibly can. And so I just put in footnotes. Um, so that's a good enough reason anyway. I, and yeah. the editors mm-hmm. didn't come back and say, what's up with these footnotes? They, did they give you notes on that? No, 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 not at all. Um, but the other reason for it is because I think the reason that it worked, and then I'm now going to claim credit for, even though I don't have it, <laughs> is because that creates a controlling narrator mm-hmm. who mm. obviously has something of a sense of humor, I think, which Amelia is in the middle of all this stuff. And, you know, she doesn't realize how funny it is when the girl says, I'm Jewish and I can't get a tattoo. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, oh, yes, we'll give you a bracelet that will make it that way. And we'll just bill you through the bookstore. Um, <laughs> a very believable amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do teach at yeah. university. <laughs> um, so I, I think that the footnotes give you a slight sense like I say, the narrator of a story is an important, super important character who has character who we don't consciously register. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to create the character of that narrator. Right, mm-hmm. right. Because I think that's what it did for me is that plus the second address made me really think about the narrator yeah. in a way that I don't Totally. It almost forces stories. you to, yeah. to like yeah. put that front and center and, and think about these questions as AP did. Mm-hmm. So you're almost like, pushing us in that direction like yeah. making us do it oh wow that doesn't sound good <laughs> no 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 <laughs> no no, I no, think no. Wait, yeah it's, no it's a it's yeah. a very interesting tension because like you said there is this it's or a structure maybe is the better word because there's suddenly this is form on top of it where you're like who are these footnotes for like yeah. i had the same question like who like and then yeah i mean it's it's a it was it was it was neat it was a neat thing to, to suddenly realize because you really don't see it very often right right 
Um, and the footnotes, especially because I mean, there weren't that many of them. No, right. and it, it, I couldn't figure out what the pattern was on it, which which is why I came up with like the wild ideas about who it was for. Because I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, so this one isn't for Amelia, and this one's explaining like Jewish history, and this one's an Elvish, and like, so what? What's the? How do these tie together? Yeah, none of them are for Amelia, I don't think. And it's interesting because it, you go into kind of neurology and mm-hmm. neuropsychology oh, by the end. I really want to talk yeah. about that. Yeah. 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 Let, can we talk about that? Can, Once can you we, read it. Can and we then, read it? Let me yeah. just. Yeah. I have sure. This, I, yeah. I've been wanting to talk about this for two weeks now. Um, so here, this is the footnote we're talking about. People often move before their brain tells them to. Benjamin. Lieber's experiments showed that the intention to flex a finger muscle arose about 200 milliseconds before people moved it. But the actual movement of the finger started about 500 milliseconds before people moved the muscle. That is, we move first and then tell ourselves a tiny story to explain it. Yeah. That's, 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 a, a big, that's a big thing to drop in the middle of a short yeah. story. Yeah. 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 And it begs the question for me, is me when I read that, and then it really resonated mm-hmm. when I got to the end of the yes. story. Right. Mm-hmm. Does Amelia have free will at all? Mm-hmm. In other words, is she at the mercy of the Fae, regardless of what her intentions are? And like... Yeah, it really, I, it really was. It's been buzzing around in my brain for a while since we read. And I yeah. think the buildup to that particular footnote was great because your footnotes before that were kind of small and casual, and then it's just mm-hmm. boom, right? Heavy science. Kind of yeah. like, what? What is going on here? Yeah, um, there are that and the footnote on glamour are the only ones that actually interact with the story mm. in a way that yeah. informs the reader in a meaningful way. Um. First of all, I'm just really interested in that question right now. For it's fast, it's fascinating. <laughs> regardless, yeah. I have a story coming out in in fall of 2020, which is about reality and oh, interesting. Yeah, but in this story, I was talking about dramatic tension early, and you know, as a as a that was the other thing I'm just obsessed with right now. I I was one of those people who wrote stories in which closely observed characters didn't do anything. For a long time. <laughs> I mean, that's like every right. I mean, every starting writer. I feel like we about yeah. that. actually we talk about that all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny when I teach graduate students, it's all nuance and navel gazing, and when I teach <laughs> freshmen, it's all supercharged plots with no characters. Uh-huh. Uh, not a hundred percent. There's always some, but yeah. So, um, so dramatic tension. Um, Teaching screenwriting has been really valuable for me because one of the things I learned is that suspense is better than surprise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing something might happen is way more meaningful than, you know, you're going along, you're going along. Right, surprise! Right. And at that point, you're bored. You've already put the story down. And, like, I love procedural television in a funny way. <laughs> um, so does Chelsea. I yeah, do. It's I do. Exactly. A lot. Here we go. But anyway, yeah. House. <laughs> So oh, yeah. you're watching house. I mean, how procedural is house? If uh, it's on television and I walk through the living room and Hugh Laurie is sitting in a chair tossing a ball up and we are in a shot looking down on him and he grabs the ball and he gets up and he limps off, I think, oh, it must be between 20 minutes and 15 minutes of the hour. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. I know how that story's going to turn out. Right. I just don't know the details of how it's going to turn out. And there's a satisfaction in that. And so this story starts with don't go under the hill. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, that's what's going to happen. Or you think the whole dramatic tension is will she or won't she? 
Right. And um, yeah, I, um, the, you could complain that the problem with this story is that if you're a particular, if you're a certain kind of reader, that structure really resonates with you. You know from the very beginning, yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah, that's but it, but it's how we get there that we're yeah. very interested in. Yeah, yeah. And I'd never written a story like that before, and I liked it. And that thing about um, yeah, we act, and then we tell ourselves a story about how we act. I don't know that the Faye had any control over Amelia, right? But. Yeah, in a weird sense. I don't think Amelia has any real control over yeah, Amelia Yeah, it's like either. Amelia's story has control over Amelia. And I don't think any of us have control over ourselves. I th- I think that we are all kind of fooled about how much of our actions are this kind of pachinko game result of our neurons <laughs> firing in random combinations with Chemicals each other. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that we absolutely. think, oh, yeah, that was my decision altogether. No, it wasn't at all. So free will is an illusion. Uh, I personally <laughs> think that, but it makes my therapist really unhappy. <laughs> There's a lot of compelling evidence for yeah. that conclusion. So anyways, now we're, now we're contemplating our entire existence yeah, in the course exactly. of yeah. Yeah. eight, it, ten pages or whatever. Right. Yeah. Based on the college experiences, which when that's when I think we think we're in the most control. Like, mm. oh, I'm finally free from my right. parents my and I'm going to rename yeah. myself and I'm going to lose yeah, all this Yeah, this is weight. my big yeah. chance. Yeah. yeah, it's my big chance and I'm going to, I'm free. Mm-hmm. No, you're not. Yeah. And yet you are. I mean, it's as close to freedom as we come. Mm-hmm. And since... There's lots and lots of evidence that, like, this conversation is changing the arrangement of those pachinko stops in our brains. The talking to each other and looking for things and all that sort of thing, you know, it just keeps getting more and more chaotic and more and more complicated. So, yeah, you are changing a whole lot. And I don't know. It's just a fascinating question to me. So I actually think that, that for me, this was a really dramatic tension more than footnotes and more than second person turned out to be the issue of technique that brought this story from, oh, I'll just throw a whole bunch of things against the wall and see if they stick, to, oh, I have a story. And I will tell you, when I was writing it, I was thinking she'd go under the hill. And then about two-thirds of the way through, I thought, maybe she won't. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun when stories surprise you a little like that. Yeah, but it's because she, I think she kind of comes comes into herself at that point. And I, I think I know the point at which you're, that you're speaking about. And I'm like, oh, she's she's kind of got it all together. And she's, you know, she's like well, living life on her own terms. But yeah. then, yeah, but then fate or the story or whatever it is comes in. Michael Goodman or whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. yeah. Michael Goodman? Yeah. Yeah. But that's a great false hope or a false, um, not false ending. What we, we called it something. In one false of the, win. False win. Yeah. Exactly. Where you're like, oh, she's going to get out. She's going to escape. Oh, great. She's going to get on. The, oh, no. I think without that, the story would fail. Yeah. You have to, you have to give it some twist. You have to give it yeah. some turn. Yeah, I agree. Um, ending should be inevitable, but slightly surprising. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Interesting I like that. It. And I like that it's ambiguous as to whether or not it's a sad ending or a happy ending, or maybe like, maybe it's both. Interesting. Yeah. And like you, you kind of, cause you drop in the beginning when they're at the orientation 
that there are these people and they're on the PowerPoints, like, if you see these people, please let us know. There's, you know, bring them back to the student center or whatever. And, you know, the earliest one is from like the 30s. Right. The black and white mm-hmm. photo. Yeah. Right. Right. And yeah. so, and it's unclear whether or not this person would have aged. And because they're showing the old, you know, the, the picture from the 30s, no, he hasn't aged. But it's a classic, you know, show the gun in the first act kind of thing. That's mm-hmm. how I read it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where it was, oh, okay, she's going to get taken, right? Some Or somebody's going to get taken. You know, you just know. Someone's going to mm-hmm. disappear. And also, it's based on all of the stories of the person who's abducted. Tam Lin and all the rest yeah. of that. Yeah. They, right. uh, Rip Van Winkle is an American version of an one of these stories brought over. Uh, the, the form of Rip Van Winkle is a classic folk tale around the Fae. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go to sleep and you wake up and it's 100 years later. Right. right. So that was our discussion of Maureen McHugh's story, Under the Hill. It is out in the September-October issue of Fantasy and Science Fiction magazine, edited by the incomparable Charlie Finley, who is wonderful. Um, And he has excellent taste in stories. Clearly. (laughs) Except for mine. Ah, No, no, no. (laughs) Oh, he's right. (laughs) Oh, oh. Um, And now we want to, um, we've, we've come up with some fun questions for you. Maureen. We think they're fun. Anyway. Five, <laughs> you might Five questions. Okay, so my question for you, Maureen, is this. What is the best piece of writing advice you have ever received? Oh. Um, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> and I've received a ton of writing advice. But That's of course, what I figured. The, the, the hardest thing to learn to do as a writer is to write without having a deadline and anybody making you do it. So uh, the best piece of it. I don't write every day. I don't write five days a week, but I am always pressuring myself. When was the last time I wrote? Um, and what I've really come to is Virginia Woolf wrote two handwritten pages a day. Hmm. So, uh, 250 words a day at the end of the year, you've got a novel. So just sit down and write. It doesn't have to be good. You can't fix it if you haven't written it. That's the best advice I ever got. Well, and you just said you don't write every day, which is really refreshing to hear, because I feel like everything I read is like, write every day, a writer writes. There's definitely, I think, especially in Mm. the genre sort of world, there's this emphasis on word counts and that sort of thing, which I don't know. Mm -hmm. But but I do hear, Maureen, what you're saying, where it's got to be kind of front of mind, I guess. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's where I like to live. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. <It's> <laughs> he lives on the edge of his own mind. <laughs> when I was just first starting out, my roommate in New York was a fine arts painter. And all she ever did was complain about, she was 10 years older than I was. And she, all she ever did com- was complain about the, uh, little, how little time she had to work. And it instilled in me, I think it's really good if you're a writer, if you have a sense of guilt about not having written. Mm. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So what's the worst piece of writing advice you've ever received? Write what you know. Yeah. <laughs> that was easy. That's, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, because, I, you know, I've never met an elf in my life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I write best when I write to find out things. Um, Joan Didion has a quote, which I will get wrong. I write to find out what I think and what I feel. And she's got like four different things that she writes to find out. Uh, writing is a process for me. I don't know what the story is when I start. I don't think most of us do. And so if there's something that itches at me, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying write to find out how Congress works. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, maybe. That, that, book's been, that book's been written, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I am saying write to figure out things that are tremendously important to me. Um, but I don't really write to get the answers. I just write to explore them. It's almost write what mm. you don't know. <laughs> write what you're obsessed with, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite curse word? Fuck. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Who is a writer you'd want to invite to a dinner party, living or dead? Oh, interesting. Um, I don't think writers necessarily make good company. <laughs> Depends Thanks on the writer. Thanks a lot, Maureen. Hey, hey. <laughs> a good chance they'll be drinking, though, right? Um, I've done some time in science fiction conventions, and the saying is, when fans come over, you lock the pantry. When writers come over, you lock the liquor bar. <laughs> um, I guess I'd have to say, I know it's a stupid cliche answer, but I'd have to say Shakespeare. Mm. I think Will mm-hmm. would be really fun to sit and talk to. I mean, he had the theater experience and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. He'd probably also, be a lively guy. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he'd probably yeah, be a lively, lively fun, fun time. Think, yeah. He would have um, so much gossip about the theater. <laughs> yes. Like, 500 like, years ago. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, I like that so stuff. <laughs> I guess um, David Foster Wallace was also really famous for being a great listener. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, is there a story that you wish you had written? Oh, God. Uh, I've talked to him. There's a billion stories I wish I'd written, but um, uh, Laurie Moore has a story I think is really beautiful called People Like That Are the Only People Here. Hmm. I think I have that in a collection. Yeah, it's yeah really good it was story, in yeah. Year's Best. Um, I don't want to have written it for the reasons she wrote it. Um, her toddler had a Wilms tumor, a kind of cancer. And her husband, in the story, she says, her husband turns to her and says, you have to write about this. We're going to need the money. Oh, Jesus. Wow. But the, Lori Moore is really good at these funny distancing that actually brings you in. And um, the characters are mother, father, and baby. And yet it's the most personal story ever. It's just a masterfully handled story. Mm-hmm. It's brutal read. In brutal a really read. In a good way. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I also wish I'd written, uh, we are completely we are oh all gosh. completely beside ourselves. Yes. Karen Fowler. Karen is a friend of mine, and God, I hate how good she is. I know. <laughs> but we're friends anyway. That's <laughs> how we talk about Carter sometimes. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> so that was five questions. Yeah, yeah. Five questions. Well, thank you guys. This is yeah. I got to talk about myself. God, yeah, yeah. Right. this is the best. Oh, so, and, then, yeah. and you get to talk about yourself some more because if you have things coming out that. We should yeah, yeah, I think it's in the next six months to a year. Um, Tor is reissuing my first novel, uh, China Mountain Jong. Awesome. Congratulations. Nice. And I was given the chance to read it again and uh, you know, is there anything that you know you need to fix or anything like that? Mm. And I said it you know, I wrote it in nineteen came out in 1992. <laughs> um, <laughs> Long pause. Yeah. Um, so I said, no, it is what it is. But I was so much braver then. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. How so, expand on that a little bit. What, what do you mean braver? In um, what you tackled the subject matter or? Just the way I wrote. Um, I didn't have near as much technique as I have now. Mm. Um, but when I wrote that novel... I never thought anybody would read it. Hmm. I, I finished that. I lived in China for a year. I started the novel before I went to China when I was living in New York for a writer's group that met like yours does once a week. Um, and I thought it was going to be a short story. And then when I um, 
went to China. I was not all the way done. When I came back, I finished it, writing it in my mother's unfinished basement. Mm. And I mean, it was about a gay Chinese American guy in the future. And I was a white girl from Ohio and I just <laughs> nothing about it. And there was nothing else like it out there. And I had this weird theoretical idea I was using and everything about it was a non-starter. And I really thought nothing would ever happen with it. And it's never gone out of print. That's so awesome. So young young writers and young artists they they don't know what they're risking really. They don't. Yeah. They don't know. Just go for it. They're not a. No, they don't know what they're. (laughs) They don't know what to be afraid of. Yeah, they don't know what to be afraid of. And you have a story coming out in tour also next fall. I do. I have a story coming out in 2020 at tour.com called Yellow and the Perception of Reality. And it's connected (laughs) to that footnote that you liked so much. Can't wait. Yeah, Chris is going to be first in line. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right up my alley. Sign up for their email updates. They're really oh, I'm good. already on those. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah those are great. Oh, well, congratulations. And yeah, yeah, well done. Thank you so yeah. much for joining thank us. Yeah, thank, thank you, you really fun. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. Um, Maureen, where can people find you on the, on the social medias? I've just recently sort of started doing my Instagram account for real. Um, and on Instagram, I'm Maureen MCQ, all one word. It's also my Twitter handle. And I'm on Facebook under Maureen McHugh. All right. So that was the episode. This has been The Genre Hustle. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Genre Hustle. You can find us on our website, www.genrehustle.com, on Twitter at Genre Hustle, or on Instagram at Genre Hustle. Our podcast is available on all major streaming platforms, including YouTube. Be sure to like, subscribe, and send any feedback or suggestions our way. See you next time.